Preparation Sunday. It's the Sunday before we begin the season of Lent. So we'll hear the story from the scriptures today during the message about the, the transfiguration. Uh, but first I want to invite you to a prayer, to say a prayer with me pertaining to this story in scripture. Um, so um, I'm a little, uh, we, we, we've just started a new kind of tech deal and I'm not sure what's going on with the, the Zoom, but uh, your parts will be in bold here, which I think you can still see, and uh, my parts will, will not be in bold. So um, again, this is, uh, this, this litany recalls how, how God has revealed himself in human history and ultimately in, in Jesus Christ. And so uh, please join with me in this litany. That might work. There, that'll work. <laughs> That's actually slide two, though. There you go. All right, let us pray. Blessed is the Lord our God, who revealed the law to Moses. The Lord our God is holy. Blessed is the Lord our God, who has spoken through the prophets. The Lord our God is holy. Blessed is the Lord of God, our God, who came to us in Jesus Christ. The Lord our God is holy. The one who spoke and called light out of darkness now shines in our hearts. The Lord our God is holy. The one who comes and does not keep silence now speaks in our midst. The Lord our God is holy. Now we have seen the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Let us worship our holy God with the song, Majesty.
became sin who knew no sin that we might become his righteousness he humbled himself and carried the cross love so
Apostle Paul, a key leader in the early church, was in prison when he wrote these words. He said, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition, make your requests known to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. My friends, the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you today. Let us share a greeting and a sign of peace with those around us at this time. invite all our children who'd like to go to Heartland Kids, well all of them, age three through fifth grade, up now. So this is a, uh, a kids program we have during the uh, sermon time because Stephanie and I are too boring for kids apparently, so Andy's nodding his head, so we send him to him and apparently he's less boring, so. Um, <laughs> so. We always like to uh, bless you kids, and we like to receive a blessing from you. So do you remember what we say? Yeah. You remember? The, the Lord be with you. That's what you're going to say, okay? But I want you to do it really loud today. Can you do it really loud? All right, on the count of three. Ready? One, two, three. The Lord be with you. And also with you. All right, kids, have so much fun, okay? Want me to take you? Mommy's preaching today, so I have to take you. Beautiful Savior, King 
Good morning. It's, yeah, perfect. I was just going to suggest we do that. Um, do you need to click, or can I click with this? Do you need to click it? I can just point to you. And, okay, <laughs> just so you all know what's going on, I might just point to Bob, and then he's going to do the clicking for us. So, well, we pick up today in Mark chapter 8. As you know, we have been walking through the Gospel of Mark, and today we are in Mark 8, which you might recognize is smack dab in the middle of the gospel. There are 16 chapters, and this is the end of Mark 8, so we're right in the middle. In this text, it marks not just the middle of the gospel story, but indeed a crucial turning point in the whole story. Because... Next slide. Leading up to this point, as you recall from the previous sermons we've been hearing, Jesus, he's been gaining in popularity. He has been showing his power as a master healer and teacher, and the crowds are flocking to him. And Jesus, he has faced some opposition. That opposition came mostly from those whose hearts were defiled, as we heard about in the sermon from Kathy Nimmer last week. Jesus' opposition came from those who on the outside might have looked clean and upright, but on the inside there was pride and envy and hatred. But yet, for the most part, in chapters 1 through 8, things seem to be looking up from the disciples' angle. Jesus, they thought, in their worldly frame of mind, was leading them right up the ladder of success and power. It was all looking really good, they thought. That is, until Jesus throws this curveball at the end of chapter 8. It's a curveball that will change their life trajectory and ours forever. And that's what we find out today in Mark 8. We'll read today in three sections, pausing to reflect on each one. But before we read, let us pray. Lord, may your word be our rule, your spirit, our teacher, and the glory of Christ, our single concern. Amen. We begin with chapter 8, verses 27 to 30. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, who do, you say, who do people say that I am? And they answered him, John the Baptist and others Elijah, and still others one of the prophets. He asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Messiah. And he sternly ordered them not to tell anyone about him. This is the word of the Lord. Peter's confession here, it is the turning point for Jesus and his disciples. Because after this, nothing is the same. And I want you to recall your own life. Think back in your history, however many years that may be. Was there ever a turning point for you? A turning point like this when you had to make a decision what you truly believed about Jesus. Was Jesus simply a good tale, a moral exemplar, the God of your parents or grandparents? 
Or did Jesus mean something more to you? Something more to you personally? Who do you say that I am? It's a question that Jesus asked not just his disciples, but all of us who are his disciples forevermore. Up until this point in the gospel narrative, following Jesus for his 12 disciples, it had been fairly comfortable for them. But slowly, through his ministry, the tides are changing. Opposition to Jesus was rising, and as Jesus' identity and message and mission were becoming clearer, those in leadership were discovering that they weren't so keen on Jesus And the disciples are discovering that Jesus' ways were increasingly at odds with the surrounding culture. And so it seemed that a decision would soon need to be made about Jesus. Who would they say that Jesus was? What role would he play in their lives? Would Jesus be simply another minor add-on to their lives? They would continue on with the status quo, but just bring in a couple teachings or examples from Jesus when it benefited them? Or would Jesus be something more? Would they be willing to turn over absolutely everything to this teacher and healer, to entrust their entire lives to him, no matter the cost? It's in the midst of these increasing tensions that the disciples are feeling, perhaps that you felt at some point in your life, that Jesus decides to employ a brilliant teaching technique. You teachers can affirm this. When you need to get their attention, take them somewhere else. He takes them on a field trip. Go to the next slide here. So Jesus takes his first century disciples away from Bethsaida and away from their home base of Capernaum, which you can see are right there at the northern rim of the Sea of Galilee, and he takes them quite far north up to Caesarea Philippi. It's quite a journey, and he takes them up there for a reason. But Caesarea, it was an odd place to take his disciples. You can go to the next slide. Because you see, Caesarea, it was predominantly a Gentile town. It was full of worship of other gods. You see, Caesarea, a little history for history buffs, it was originally named Panias after a Greek god named Pan. And he had a sacred grotto there, which is a place people would come to worship him. Later, the town was renamed Caesarea in honor of Augustus Caesar, the Roman Empire, who was also considered to be a god. So Augustus Caesar, in fact, he was crowned divine in this very town. So this town is really important to the worship of Pan and Augustus Caesar. The two big temples that you can see here in the middle, those are temples to those two Greek and Roman gods. And Gentiles from all over the world would travel here to these pagan temples to worship. And that's exactly where Jesus brings his Jewish disciples. It seems really odd, doesn't it? But that's where he brings them. And it's in the midst of this setting, in the midst of all these pressures around them to worship other gods, that's what everyone else is doing, that Jesus asks his question. Now, who do you say that I am? Peter, who's often a spokesman for the disciples, is the first to speak up. You are the Messiah. 
here in Caesarea, here in the midst of all this pressure to bow to other gods, here is where Peter is pressed to make his decision. Who do you say that I am? Have you ever had an experience like this? Perhaps when you were younger, perhaps recently, perhaps when you, in your later years, whatever it was, perhaps in a social group, you felt pressure to worship appearances, to maintain a certain image of yourself, not let people know of what's really going on beneath the surface, maybe even the struggles you're having in your relationship with Jesus. Maybe in a work environment, you have felt pressure to worship money or success, whatever the cost. Maybe you have felt pressure even in religious circles, maybe even professed Christian circles, to support a cause or belief that you know to be contrary to what Jesus taught and lived. Well, it's in the thick of these kinds of settings, settings where the pressure is high, that Jesus asks us, Who do you say that I am? It was in the midst of this kind of setting where the pressures are high that Peter makes his faith declaration. You are the Messiah. This is the climax of the story, a true high point for Peter, a time when he finally recognizes and declares who Jesus truly is. Jesus is the Messiah. He makes it known. He is the long-awaited one who will save his people. Peter has made his claim. So if this is such a high point, why then do we get this very puzzling response from Jesus in the very next verse, verse 30? Right away, Jesus responds, and he, Jesus, sternly ordered them not to tell anyone about him. So what's going on here? Why would Jesus want Peter to stay quiet about this amazing news that the Messiah is here? Well, Jesus still has some teaching to do. Jesus knows that Peter's vision is still a little bit fuzzy. Peter has one idea of who Jesus will be as the Messiah, of who he wants Jesus to be as the Messiah, but Jesus' vision is something completely different. You see, Peter, like most Jews, expected the Messiah to be a great military leader like David or the other Israelite kings, and this Messiah would lead a great, powerful military revolt against Rome and then finally rule in all their worldly power and wealth and honor and glory, and that's what the followers of Jesus would get too. So if Peter were to go out proclaiming that Jesus was Messiah, Essentially, at this point, he'd probably be declaring war, rousing the Jewish troops for battle, and the Romans, in response, would try to squash this uprising by immediately killing Jesus and his followers, just like they had done with all of Israel's former so-called messiahs. But Jesus has a different idea of who he is as the messiah, of who he is as savior, and how that is going to come about And it looks a lot different from Peter's vision. Jesus' identity as the Messiah is going to look starkly different. So Jesus proceeds to teach them. We pick up with verse 31. 
Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. He said all of this quite openly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. He called the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? Those who are ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of them the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. This is the word of the Lord. If the first stage of Peter's discipleship journey in this text was confession, the second stage might be called confrontation. Peter rebukes Jesus, and then Jesus turns around and sharply rebukes Peter back. There's a thick confrontation going on here. This scene goes to show just how rocky the path of discipleship can be. Peter has gone from this high point of confessing Jesus as Messiah to this embarrassing rebuke of his Lord. As readers, we might judge Peter. Peter, what are you thinking, rebuking the Messiah? Then again, if I'm honest with myself, I must admit there are plenty of times when I have rebuked Jesus, when the church at large has rebuked Jesus, perhaps when you have rebuked Jesus too. That is, when we have had ideas of who we think we want Jesus to be, of how we think Jesus should act, and when Jesus doesn't fit what we think, we get mad or irritated. Not only do we disapprove of what Jesus is doing, but we simply don't want to follow in those footsteps. So no, Jesus, I don't want to hang out with sinners and tax collectors, so please stop doing that. No, Jesus, don't suffer and be rejected and killed because I definitely don't want to do that. Peter rebukes Jesus. And undergirding this rebuke is Peter's own agenda. Jesus, I want you to be a Messiah who is a powerful king in this world with wealth and honor and ease of life. And then I, as your follower, I will have all of those things too. But Jesus, in response to Peter, in response to all of us who try to impose our agendas upon our Messiah, has sharp words. Get behind me, Satan. For you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. 
Jesus isn't joking around. This is a serious matter. The word that Jesus uses to describe Peter is Satan, which literally meant adversary, one who's opposing the will of God. So Jesus is calling Peter an adversary, an adversary of God. And that's what happens when we try to boss Jesus around, when we try to set God's agenda for him. We become adversaries, opponents of God. But lest we get discouraged, let's point out that there's very good news in Jesus' rebuke. Really, really, really good news in Jesus' rebuke. Jesus doesn't say to Peter, get out of my sight, leave me alone, you're done, you're not my disciple anymore. Rather, he says, okay, Peter, get behind me. Peter, return to your proper position, not in front of me telling me where to go, but behind me, following me as my disciple. Trust me, Peter, get behind me, my plans are better than yours. Follow me. So what Jesus reveals both here and throughout the rest of the gospel, as we'll learn, is that to follow Jesus means to deny ourselves, to pick up our crosses. And with that denial comes incredible, incredible life. Anything more than we could imagine. True life, fulfilling abundant life with God and forevermore. But we'll continue to learn about that more until Easter. For this morning, though, I pause us, I encourage us to just pause, to pause and consider. In what areas of our life might we be trying to boss Jesus around? In what ways are we trying to get in front of Jesus, directing Jesus, rather than getting behind him and letting him direct us? This is something really appropriate to consider as we approach the season of Lent, which, as Pastor Brandon said, starts this Wednesday. So we'll go to this next slide. As we approach this Lenten journey, I encourage you to consider these two questions. What will you give up and what will you take up? What will you give up and what will you take up? Because throughout church history, Lent has been this 40-day penitential season when we recognize I have been trying to chart my own path. I've been trying to get in front of Jesus. And so now I'm going to repent of those things and take up practices that will help me get behind Jesus, to follow Jesus and not my own will. So this Lent, I encourage you, what will you give up? What do you participate in that tries to make you be the leader of your life? What do you look to for comfort or direction or connection other than God? Maybe it's something as simple as TV or social media, maybe even overworking, something you turn to for, instead of God. And then what will you take up? Maybe Bible reading or set prayer times or a service activity, something that will help you to follow Jesus more closely. So consider these questions. What will you give up and what will you take up? But if you're not sure that it's all worth it, because it does start with giving something up, which can be hard. If you're not sure that you're worth it, or if it's worth it, or even if you do, I have one more passage for you. This is the, the really high point. So hear this word of the Lord. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, and he led them up a high mountain apart by themselves. 
and he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became dazzling white, such as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared with him Elijah with Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Then Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Then a cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud there came a voice. This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they saw no one with them anymore, but only Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. So far, Peter has gone through the phases of confession and confrontation. Now we'll call this third one, confusion. But first, we need to pay attention to the setting, because the setting makes a big difference. Like Caesarea Philippi, this location was a specific setting that Jesus chose. You see, Jewish people and many Christians today believed in what were called thin places. Thin places. Maybe you have experienced them. There are places when heaven and earth seem to collide, where God's realities become our realities when God's presence feels palpable. Perhaps you've had those experiences here in worship, watching a sunset, holding your baby, times when God feels ever so near, the world feels perfect. In ancient Israel, a prominent thin place was a mountaintop. That's why we call them mountaintop experiences. That's where Moses went to receive the law. That's where Elijah heard God speak to him in a whisper. So this location, it is a thin place for the disciples. But the day is also a thin place. It's the Sabbath, a day that the Israelites held sacred and Christians too. It was a day on which we experienced the delight of God's kingdom on earth as we celebrate rest and peace and delight with God. So the setting of the text is very thin. On a mountaintop, on the Sabbath, they would have been expecting big things. And they do experience that. Because here, Jesus' identity, it's revealed beyond just the physical form and worldly appearance. His radiant clothes represent to them that he is, in fact, the new Adam. He is the sinless, spotless, perfect beginning of a new humanity. Jesus' presence with Elijah and Moses, it represents that he is the fulfillment of all the law and the prophets. And Elijah and Moses' presence also represents that a new age is being ushered in. Something totally new is happening. And as Peter, James, and John are sitting here watching this, their eyes are opened to all new realities about Jesus. Yes, Peter had made the declaration of Jesus as Messiah, but he had no idea about this. Their sight has just gotten much, much clearer about who Jesus was as the Messiah. And with this new vision, the disciples become terrified, our text says, and they don't know what to say. So an appropriate response might have been silence, don't you think? When you don't know what to say, silence would seem appropriate. But Peter, as usual, opens his mouth. 
And once again, he begins ordering Jesus around. Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Peter already is setting an agenda for Jesus again. And listen closely to what's behind it. It is good for us. It is good for us to be here. Peter is thinking about them. Peter is thinking about himself. He's not thinking about what might be good for those not on the mountaintop or Jesus' long-term plans, you know, like saving the entire world, offering life to all people. Jesus' vision is still short-sighted. He's still confused about what this could all mean. And in his confusion, Peter sets his agenda. It is good for us to be here. So let's set up camp. But once again, Peter is corrected for trying to direct Jesus, rather than letting Jesus direct him. This time, the correction comes from God the Father, who speaks from a cloud. This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. Listen, Peter. Listen. And therein lies the failure of Peter in the two preceding stories. Peter got one answer right. Jesus is the Messiah. And then he suddenly thinks he has all the right answers. And he stops listening to Jesus. So I wonder today, as we come to the conclusion, how often might you and I be like Peter? How often are we quick to speak, slow to listen, quick to think that we have the right plan instead of trying to follow Jesus' plan instead? This isn't the last time that Peter will rashly say things he shouldn't. If you're familiar with the Gospels, recall that Peter is the one who denies Jesus three times. But there's hope. There is hope, friends, for recall that Peter is the one to whom Jesus says, and I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And there's something very interesting about Jesus giving this disciple formerly named Simon, the name Peter, which means rock. Often we think of Peter being this great solid foundation for the church, right? This great disciple to be emulated. But the truth is that Peter's path was pretty rocky. What if instead Jesus named Peter, meaning rock, in light of the parable of the four soils, which Jesus taught before this? Jesus said in that parable, and these are the ones sown on rocky ground. When they hear the word, they immediately receive it with joy, but they have no root, and they endure only for a while. Then when trouble or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And that's a description that fits Peter. Peter is the first one to joyfully confess Jesus as Messiah, but at the first mention of persecution, he rebukes Jesus. And later, before Jesus' crucifixion, Peter flat out denies Jesus three times. And yet, Peter is the one on whom Jesus chooses to build his church. And you and I are the ones on whom Jesus chooses to work out his mission through us, no matter how rocky our journey is. Because, you see, it's not about Peter it's not about his perfect faith, his perfect following. It's about Jesus. 
And Jesus never gives up on his disciples, no matter how rocky our journey might be. It's not about us and our perfect faithfulness. It's about Jesus. So today, if you're feeling rocky, if you're feeling like you're constantly taking one step forward and two steps back, be encouraged. Jesus doesn't give up on us. Jesus simply invites us to get back in our proper place, which is behind him, following his disciple, following his plans according to his vision, not according to our own. So again, as we enter this Lenten season, I encourage you to consider these two questions. What will you give up and what will you take up? Because, friends, there are certain things in our lives that are causing us to try to direct Jesus, that are making our lives pretty rocky. So what might we give up so that we can take up other practices to get behind Jesus? Because I promise you, even though it might feel like a loss for the moment, you will gain more than you ever thought imaginable. You will gain abundant life, true life, life with God now and forevermore. Let us pray. Jesus Christ, we thank you that you are so faithful to us, perfect in every single way. We thank you that your ways are higher than our ways and that you always have our best intentions in mind and the best intentions for the good of your whole creation. So Lord, give us humility, give us discipline to put ourselves behind you, to trust you, to know that you love us and you will guide us in ways of faithfulness. It's in your faithful name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Now is the time when we take up our... No, it's not. <laughs> now is not the time. <laughs> oh, we thought... Now is the time we pray. Every now and then we like to do our prayers of the people by taking requests from the congregation, and so today is one of those days, and so we would like to ask you all to offer your uh, prayers and concerns, whether it's for the world, the country, your family, your friends, uh, whatever your concerns might be, whatever your praises might be, we invite the congregation to, to offer those now. prayer for Bruno, whose leukemia has returned. That's and your niece, not sorry, nephew? Husband. Niece's husband, okay. Yeah. Okay, sorry to hear that. Other prayer requests for today?
So a kid um, from your school, I guess, I'm guessing, yeah, that um, is going to be reunited with biological parents soon. So we'll pray for that. Other requests? Yeah, Margaret. So Margaret's daughter is going to have a port put in to start chemo this week, so we'll certainly pray for her. Can you remind me her name again? Christine, Christine that's right. Other prayer requests? Jenna? For Jeanette um, Shof at St. Anthony for her healing and finding some solutions so she can come home. Other prayers, petitions, praises? All right. Um, let us now join together in prayer. God of all creation, we bless you for the changing of the seasons. We bless you for the first signs of spring, the daffodils starting to come up, giving us uh, hope that winter will not last forever, um, not just physically, but in our own lives. The winter of our lives will not last forever, but you will, O oh God, bring the good work that you began to completion. And so we praise you for that. We praise you, Lord, for Heartland Community Church, for the ways you've weaved together relationships to form a community of prayerful love. We pray, Lord, that you would continue to help us to be your agents of mission, to be those whom you build your church. And Lord, when we and our journeys are rocky, we pray that you would set us on level ground and Lord, we bring to you the specific requests that have been mentioned. We pray for Bruno, whose leukemia has returned. We ask, Lord, that you would bring, uh, put that cancer deep into remission once more. We pray for um, the kid that Kim knows through school to be reunited with biological parents. We, we praise you that they've come to this point. We thank you for the kids' excitement about this, and Lord, we also pray that you would make this a good situation, that you would, um, your spirit would be upon these parents to, to welcome their, their, their kid and to, um, to, to love them as, as you love, love this kid. Lord, we pray also for, for Margaret's daughter, who uh, has a port to be put in this week for, for chemo. Lord, we pray for Margaret and her heavy heart. Lord, your word says that um, blessed are those who mourn, and we pray that you would make good on your promise for Margaret, that you would wrap your arms around her and around others who are afraid and others who um, are, are um, scared for what might happen. We just, we pray that you would bring uh, relief and remission for Christine. And finally, we pray for Jeanette Schof at St. Anthony. I pray for healing.
pray for her to be able to return home. Pray for, for John as well as he sits beside her. Lord, we miss her here. We pray that she would know that she is loved by you and by your church. Lord, there are so many other requests on our hearts today that we have not spoken, but you know them. So in the quiet of this place, in the quiet of our hearts, as individuals, we speak our requests to you. Come, Holy Spirit, make all things right. Come, Lord Jesus, and come soon. Amen. This time in our service, we will take our tithes and offerings. If you're a guest among us, we pray that this service has been a gift to you. Please do not feel obliged to give. But to those who call Heartland home, this is our, our, another way we worship God, another way we further Christ's mission in the world. So let us worship God through our tithes and offerings. Thank you for all the grace that you've poured down upon us, but more so, 
we thank you for showing that to give grace is better than to receive. From the grace of us, Lord, we have gathered these tithes and offerings. We ask that you accept them. We ask that you lead us in your will to better our community. Amen. Amen. Please join us in singing our closing song, I Want to Walk as a Child of the Light. As we go from here to follow Jesus, know that Jesus loves you and cares for you and will direct you in paths of life and peace. And as you go, take this ancient blessing, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn toward you and give you everlasting peace. Go now to love and serve. Amen. Amen.